HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We do more varieties and flavors of cheese than anywhere else on earth. By pushing the boundaries of what cheese can and should be, find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome culinary historian Lenny Sorensen. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Lenny about African-American contributions to American food, her rural values, and we'll hear Lenny's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. On this show, we've talked about Julia's longstanding commitment to culinary history. Certainly, she was influential in expanding Americans' awareness of French food, but Julia also worked to improve our appreciation of American food. One of Julia's later career pivots was to focus on American talent and to highlight the depth of American food traditions, which, at least to much of the rest of the world, were often reduced to cheeseburgers, when in reality, they are much richer and more diverse. If you watch some of Julia's later television series, like Cooking with Master Chefs, she was focusing on what her guests were cooking on the American scene, even if many of the guests were French. That focus extended to supporting research into American culinary history, which at the time was kind of a nascent field. One way Julia did this was by helping raise money for preserving old cookbooks, which in turn helped elevate their inherent value. What you won't see in Cooking with Master Chefs is a lot of people of color. Although the third episode featured the late Patrick Clark 
an African-American chef who helmed the Hay Adams Hotel Kitchen in Washington, D.C. 30 years ago, amplifying underrepresented voices was really not on the agenda. Thankfully, times and interests have changed. Someone who has been instrumental in showcasing those underrepresented voices fundamental to the development of American food is Lenny Sorensen. California-born, like Julia, Lenny ended up a South Dakota farmer before moving to Virginia, unlike Julia. While devoting herself to a rural existence, she earned an MA PhD in African American history and culture from William and Mary, and was the African American research historian at Monticello, Thomas Jefferson's former plantation in Charlottesville, Virginia, which is now an educational center. Retired from Monticello, Lenny writes and lectures about food history and teaches rural life skills from her farm in Albemarle County, Virginia. If her voice sounds familiar, she was recently featured in Netflix's High on the Hog series, based on the book by Dr. Jessica Harris, who joined us in episode 32. Before embarking on a career in food and history, Lenny was a folk singer, a cast member of the musical Hair, catered for movie crews, and ran a tamale business. To say she is a jack of all trades is an understatement. She joins us today to share her insights about African-American contributions to American culinary history and about her rural values. Welcome to the podcast, Lenny. Thank you very much. Good to hear your voice. And yours. So let's just start with, when did your focus and attention turn to culinary history? Was there like one moment or was it a gradual uh, process? Uh, it was actually a very gradual process. I had always been uh, a... a an, a, an aggressive reader of history. I really dug that. And I dug my own family history. So I was always really into that. And when I went to farming, the thing that struck me was I knew that, uh, I knew very well that so much of American agriculture, especially in the South, had been done by black people, enslaved black people. And yet that didn't seem to be reflected. Somehow uh, all black people did was... Uh, I don't know, pick cotton. And, and yet all those meals and all those cows that had to be milked and all that stuff that had to be done and all the food that had to be prepared um, was kind of left, left out. But as I farmed and really thought a great deal about it while I was out milking cows and, and, uh, and cooking on wood and chopping wood, you know, I realized those were all activities that, uh, that black people enslaved and free had been doing for you know a couple hundred plus years and how could that story be told uh, at the time i mostly just thought about it because i was busy doing i was busy doing i will say because i think um uh, everybody might be uh, tickled to know i got as a uh, birthday present edna lewis's taste of country cooking in 1977 and it was very, very uh, important to me to to read about a black woman who understood farming. There were other black women out there talking about food, but it was often very urban. And I, here I was out in the country. So that, that even more intensified my thinking. So that when I came to Virginia, I had an opportunity uh, within the first few months that I was here Actually, I had 128 pounds of sheep wool that I had to sell from my last shearing. 
and I gathered a bunch of people, uh, put an ad in the paper, and one of these people was working at Ashlawn Highland, which is now uh, called Highland, and she thought that I would would be good as a craftsperson there because I could spin and do all that. And I went there to work. And in that setting, began to really use all the stuff that I'd been thinking about, Black people in agriculture, and particularly women, and uh, Black people in gardening, and harvesting, and preserving, and doing all of the activities that if you saw a menu for an elite table, you could look at that and break it out and figure out, okay, where did that food come from? Who raised it? How did it get processed? How did it get cooked? How did it get butchered? How did it, um, who did it and how did they learn how to do it? All of those things. So that it was it was progressive for me and had just only intensified over the years. Well, I'm struck in listening to you talk to, you were going a bit against trend in the sense that my understanding at least is that because of the history of slavery, doing that kind of hard labor and particularly labor on the land was was stigmatized as what you were trying to move away from rather than return to. Do, do, do you think that's true or that it was undervalued or, or kind of set aside? Well, of course, women's work has almost always been dismissed as just trivial. And back when I first started doing this stuff, I don't think there were any food studies programs in the United States, at least that I knew about. Um, yeah. And so my thinking was, yes, we could talk about field labor, and there are incredible um, uh, works uh, on the, uh, the rigors of, of, uh, and horrors of field labor. And all, and all of that and the details of it. But there's all of this domestic work that also had to be done and that was done to maintain uh, the elite classes. And, of course, it was all under you know, the umbrella of slavery. There was no way to avoid that uh, because that was the reality. So in that setting, how did all that stuff get done? Especially when we see... Uh, in the, the when we read old cookbooks, when we read old diaries, journals, and letters, the excellence of the food, uh, or the beauty of the wrought iron um, uh, uh, work in, say, a place like South Carolina, or the buildings that, that 200 years later are still standing and are gorgeous. How did people achieve such beautiful results under this really... Uh, onerous bur burden that they all lived under. Uh, so to me, the food, I, I just wanted to focus on what, what did people have to know how to do? And then what did they, what did they do? And, you know, I mean, sometimes because they didn't leave necessarily journals and letters, I have to do a bit of, um, you know, feeling about what, what they would feel about it. Well, I'm struck by your 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 kind of talking about focusing a lot on the craftspeople and artisanship that went into the making, which included um, food and maybe elevating food to be in that category. And maybe a good way to 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 shift to talking about that more specifically. We're entered February; it's Black History Month, and I I know you have a lot of expertise in. Virginia in particular, and having worked at Monticello, and I thought maybe you could describe what you're talking about through the lens of the contributions and innovations 
of the African-Americans who made Monticello work? Well, yeah. Um, so you have, let's see, in 1776, the housemistress, Martha Wales Jefferson, wrote uh, a fairly brief uh, notice in her housekeeping book that they uh, killed 15 hogs, made 240 pounds of uh, soft soap, 240 pounds of um, hard soap, and 35 uh, firkins of lard. Now, this was in a January. Jefferson is obviously off somewhere being patriotic, and she's home. Okay, now this is her job. She is the housemistress. She's going to keep track of everything that gets produced, everything that gets brought in, everything that gets paid, all that stuff. That's her job. And I'm very glad she wrote that down because with that, knowing the weather here and the situation, we can look and see, okay, how many people would it take to butcher 15 hogs? You know what I mean? You have to. And so, yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. she certainly didn't do all that work by herself. No, no, no she way. didn't do it at all. Do you see? She wrote it down and kept rec and kept a kept a record of it. So how can we break that out from uh, we use uh, often maybe uh, uh, records that aren't quite that old uh, that tell us you know how people butchered hogs in in such quantity and who what kind of work had to be done to do it. Well, I've actually butchered hogs, and so my sense of it uh, gets down to okay, how many men, how much water, how much fuel, how many uh, lard um, kettles. Uh, how much salt, how many uh, trenchers to put this stuff with the salt it to go into the smokehouse, how much offals that had to be cleaned and made into souse because nobody's going to waste any of that stuff. Uh, and indeed, both the elegant uh, elite table, excuse me, um, ate souse as well as uh, the enslaved uh, community because of it's a it's a part, the offals are parts that don't last well. They have to be eaten fresh. Uh, mm. And so how, how did all that play out? What, so, and then you have who's apprenticing, who's learning, who's working in the kitchen, who's the scullions? Because all of during that, it had to have been at least a week of, of intense butchering activity in the house yard, there were still meals that had to be prepared and served every single day in the dining room at Monticello. So you have the cooks, you've got the scullions, you've got, you know, how to break that out so that, uh, well, at Monticello, it's not so much a problem because we do have names of so many of the people that work there, and that's, it's really so helpful in telling the stories. But in many other places, people don't have, they don't have the names, they just have the numbers of workers uh, of enslaved workers that they had. So how can we give those workers a, a skill? Can we um, broaden out our interpretations? And that's always been a goal of mine is if they had a cook, then this is what the cook had to know. So even though we don't know the name of the cook, we got what she had to know how to do and what her and teach her apprentice and teach her scullions and run that kitchen so that these meals, these uh, everything from medium fancy to fancy, 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 uh, could appear on the table every single day, every damn day. It was, that's what the cooks and everything, along with, 
if you're going to eat strawberry jam in December, you had to make strawberry jam when there were strawberries. So sometimes you were cooking and doing all of the dinner and all of the prep while also making the strawberry jam that's going to be put up and used in December. So there's looking ahead, there's, there's planning, there's uh, uh, obviously coordination with the mistress of the house and depending on her skill, interest, expertise, whatever, uh, which could be very, you know, really varied. Um, felt the, you know, a great deal of this fell on the cook to know what kind of ingredients you needed, what, how much needed to be bought and had and stored and used. I've, you know, all again under this incredible onerous burden of if things got screwed up or if there was an argument, if there was frac, you know, uh, friction, if there was tension, if there was uh, whatever, uh, house uh, house laborers uh, suffered under the same threat of sale and and separation from family um, as anybody else. So I'm always still wondering, you know, how I well not wondering so much. It's just I I just keep having it as part of my mind, remembering these people had amazing resilience that they found yeah like how how did you excel at being skilled yeah. when you were well, under yeah. unique that, pressures yeah. that right. that different than a very ordinary yeah. job and that you might not get any kind of feedback from the white family you're not hearing oh yeah betty jane she's fantastic and the food was really wonderful and thank you no 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 they're just doing they're eating what they expect to have presented at the table. And the, if anybody gets credit, of course, it's the mistress. So where where are these people who are producing these excellent things? And like I say, wrought iron, beautiful houses, food, you know, uh, coaches, you know, uh, whatever, hats, all of that stuff. I really believe they're finding it within the community, within their own community. Everybody knows kind of who's good at what's, you know, they, they have to find some appreciation somewhere because as deeply oppressive as all of that was, I don't think people could be angry all the time. Well, should we talk about, I mean, do you think it's it's fair, because there's been, I mean, he's sort of become famous in history of the 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 cook or head chef that, that worked for Thomas Jefferson, J James Hemings, was he, how long was he actually the head chef at Mon Monticello? And is he someone you would like to, to focus on? Or are there some other people oh, that you think well, have he, now? Yeah. Go ahead. Remember, he, he died in 1800. So he died just before, um, or just as, as Jefferson, maybe 1801, uh, went to the president's house. Je um, James, when they returned from France and James had... Uh, obviously learned very deep uh, uh, skills as a chef and had been cooking for Jefferson in Paris and then in Annapolis uh, as Jefferson returned. Jefferson, want, he, he made a, well, Jefferson made an offer. Let's put it this way. Everybody keeps calling it an agreement, but if you see the paper, it isn't signed by James, which is hardly <laughs> an agreement to me. Uh, 
you know, it ain't a deal because, you know, his name isn't on it. He just says, if you'll come home to Monticello and teach whom I shall choose to learn the art of French cookery, uh, I will manumit you. And he does come home. And this is in... Yeah, the inference uh, is they would have had some conversation where, presumably, though, you would yeah. have to say James Hemings made some sort of request or demand or, right, or right. Jefferson wouldn't okay. have offered that in the first place. Would right. he? And, well, I, it's he wanted... Jefferson wanted the food he wanted. You know what I mean? He he had he had very and he wanted that food wherever it is that he was. And he knew I, I knew I think he really knew that he was not going to be able to depend on James to come home to Monticello permanently. And so, but he did come in um, in ninety six seventeen ninety six, and he spent a number uh, eighteen months, I believe, um, teaching Peter, his younger brother who himself was a very fine, uh, became a very fine cook, probably already was skilled, and then went on in later years to become a fine brewer and cider maker. So, the, the, you know, there, there, was, there was that. They, when they were uh, in that uh, kitchen that has now been archaeologically um, uh, uh, dug and shown, and it's really fantastic to see it, they would have had scullions. And I believe that the two young women who ultimately end up at the president's house, Edith Fawcett and Frances Hearn, were just at a, the right age to be scullions in that kitchen. And because then I'm trying to make a sense out of when Jefferson went to the president's house, James was freed and gone. Peter uh, had a local family. And from what I understand, uh, made a particular plea to Jefferson to not send him to the president's house so that he would, you know, uh, be separated from his family. And Jefferson sent the two young women to the president's house. I see. And, so Peter Hemming stayed at Monticello. Yes, which means every vacation when the president went home and spent um, a, a couple of months there, Peter was the cook. The girls, as they were often called, stayed in Washington. Well, because I was going to say, what age would they have started as scullions? Probably 12 or something like that? Well, eight, nine, eight or nine. Yeah, that, yeah eight, very eight young. Early, right. yeah. And, but they would have, uh, they would have learned, scullions learned, you know, they were, scullions' jobs were uh, wood in, ashes out, water in, slops out, stir this, pound that. You know, you had to pound the sugar, you had to pound the salt. They would have performed those kinds of functions under the the uh, eagle eye of the cook. And so when Jefferson decided to send uh, Edith was the first that went, I believe he probably already had some good idea. he He may have spoken to Peter about this of who was who was um, going to be amenable, who you can't have somebody in the kitchen who is, fractious or rebellious or disorganized or, you know, uh, has, can't keep their attention on things. You have to have somebody in the kitchen that is going to pay attention and be obedient and do because they've got this big damn meal happening every day mm. that has to be, uh, depending on the season of the year, it would be anywhere from two o'clock until maybe four or five uh, to be served. And Edith obviously fit the fit the role, and I believe it's because she's already had some level of probably scullion level apprenticeship. Uh, 
And when she goes, then she and, and Francis joins her the next year. They are there the, during the, uh, Jefferson's entire presidency working under the French chef, Honoré Julien. Well, in Jefferson, right, I may be mixing up my history, but his wife died relatively young and he was a widower for like oh, 10 years. He, yeah, before he was a he was a widow, widower, had been a widower before he went to France. He, uh, yeah. And he, he, he basically was he didn't he didn't remarry, did he? Or not officially. No, no. So no, he, he was no, he, he was a married. single president, if you will. When That's he went right. To, and and he did. And he made changes at the White House that were um, elegant and dramatic, uh, the way the service with the, the tables and the kinds of meals he had, uh, which means that he was, by this time, of course, he was had been deeply influenced by the French cookery that he had had before he went to France uh, in various French households. And then uh, when he got there and James did his apprenticeships under in various uh, venues, and so James was an extremely experienced uh, you know, in, in the art of French cookery. And then, uh, you know, that's what he wanted. And now to have these two young women learning under a French chef. And he also had a French um, uh, maitre de Lemar who did the shopping for the president's household. So there's this influence that the young women are under for eight years. I, I just recently asked somebody at a conference uh, in, in in Asheville, the, the Chow Chow Festival, there were a whole bunch of chefs there because they were part of presenting this meal. I said, how long do you have to go uh, to apprentice and learn to become at least a, where you can call yourself a chef, even if you're not, you know, real experienced? And they said 18 months. You know, so these um, these young women were eight years, one can assume they were very, very good at what they did. So Lenny, these two women who cooked for Thomas Jefferson when he was president, I wanted you to repeat their names so we know them clearly and also ask you, do you know what happened to them af after they they worked uh, for the president? Yes, in, uh, in April of 09, 1809, they uh, returned to Monticello uh, and Honoré Julien, there, the, the chef under whom they had worked for eight years, came with them. And in that, together, they set up the kitchen that we know now, the reconstructed, the, that, that Monticello reconstructed, the big hearth, the bake oven, uh, the stew stove, all of that, that had been being built uh, in, the, in, the intervening, in the intervening years, as Jefferson was constantly you know, uh, finishing and doing Monticello. Well, that kitchen had been finished, but it now needed to be set up. It needed to be tested. The hearth had to be started and uh, all of that work. And after a couple of weeks, uh, Julian uh, made a report that he felt that the girls were well settled in and uh, would do a fine job. And at that point, they then proceeded to cook in that kitchen until Jefferson's death. So they then had another, you know, decade and a half. And were they freed upon Jefferson's death or no, did they live no, out the rest of no. their lives there? Uh, when Jefferson's uh, estate sale was, um, was done, 
uh, uh, in his will, he freed um, five men, one of whom was Joe, Joseph Fawcett, who was Edith's husband. He was a blacksmith, but he did not free Edith nor any of their children. And so Edith and a number of the children were sold to different in different settings. And it took Joe Fawcett a number of years to, with the help of some white helpers and many of his black family, free and uh, free free black family in Charlottesville, to to buy them. And in uh, 1837, uh, he. Uh, you know, you couldn't free, if you freed somebody, you had, they had to leave the state within a year. So he had to, as he bought them, he had to hold them as slaves until he was ready to leave. And just before he left, he freed his wife and uh, um, uh, all of his children, but his youngest children, his youngest son, and they went to Ohio. So, but Francis and her husband and children were sold to a professor at UVA and they were not freed. Yeah. Wow. I'm just <laughs> struck by after yeah. that's such like there's there's hope in that story, but there's a lot of horror in the fact that you could serve your country in the way those yeah, yeah. women did yeah. and still end up enslaved and separated. And and just yeah. I think yeah. in this day and age, hearing that kind of they did these amazing things and then they were sold. Like chattel is, yeah. is is so disturbing because that's what they were. They were that is the legal term. Uh, wow. You know. Well, thank so, you very much. So tell me, tell me their names again. One was Edith Fawcett. Edith Edith Hearn Fawcett and Francis Gillette Hearn. Well, I think the solace I'm going to take is that their contributions were recorded and we can know and talk about and and honor their legacy now. Yes, and at Monticello. Um, over certainly the last decade, more and more information about their families and their descendants and, um, and their work has been researched and opened out. And if you went there and you took the kitchen tour, you're going to see and hear much more about them. And that's, that's wonderful, you know, to, to, have, uh, to have them recognized. It's important to have them recognized. Absolutely. We're going to take a break and we'll be back with more from culinary historian Lenny Sorensen. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Wisconsin, the state of cheese, makes half of the nation's specialty cheese and wins more awards than any other state or country. Our Heritage and Traditions, Master Cheesemaker Program, and the American Propensity for Innovation all put Wisconsin on the cutting wedge of cheesemaking. With over 600 varieties of cheese to choose from and 5,500 national and international awards and counting, Get ready to turn your refrigerator into a trophy case. Enjoying a Wisconsin cheese is basically like winning a gold medal in culinary achievement. Set your mind at cheese. When you bite into a wedge of Wisconsin wonderful, you know it is made with the ultimate skill and passion possible. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Welcome back. We're talking to culinary historian Lenny Sorensen about her passion for culinary history 
and role values. So Lenny, I didn't want to have you on knowing how committed you've been and how you didn't even start there to living a rural lifestyle. And I think we talked about at the top of the show, a lot of that involves artisanship and craftsmanship in addition to just farming. But I was curious of your perspective also as a historian that we've also been following the, the overall rural trends in America which are true in other parts of the world too, that farming continues to become large and large scale. And that's also sort of going hand in hand with a, a depopulating of our rural environments, which are still really key to our survival. And I was just curious to get your perspective of, you know, what we're losing and more importantly, what people who aren't focused on that should be reorienting and what they should care about because it has an effect whether you live rural or urban. Well, the urban, yes, we have lost, especially in the lar large-scale farming, because it's very expensive to farm thousands of acres of, of, of anything because of the technology and the needs for it. But I am encouraged because, just as happened kind of in the late 60s through the 70s into the early 80s, there has been a resurgence of people um, wanting to make real lives, younger people wanting to make real lives. And many of them, I'm delighted, uh, are a significant number, far more than one would have imagined, I guess, of our people of color who are out there uh, doing market, market garden level uh, farming. They're growing beef and they've got sheep and they're growing eggs and they're growing lavender and they're growing herbs and they're making salves and they're growing honey and they're got um, veg and they've got high tunnels and they've got, you know, just incredible variety uh, of uh, people trying to, trying to go uh, to, to, to explore and use the rural uh, you know, especially in the rural South, it's it's a little more than I think in the in the North because it's just so damn cold in the North. You know what I mean? Who wants a farm up there? <laughs> to tell you the truth. Um, now I'm being a little a little cynical, but um, there certainly is. Well, a, no, a, it's a, true. The a, warmer a climate, the longer you're growing. You're growing season, season and right? That. And I think maybe uh, you know one of the problems with all of that is that land is so expensive because farmers who who haven't, you know, whose kids don't want to farm. There is nothing wrong with your kids not wanting to farm. Do you see what I mean? You can't blame the kids. Uh, it's <laughs> that we have a system, though, that makes it very difficult for a farmer to resist the uh, the blandishments of the, you know, realtors want a billion mega homes, you know, and do that because, mm -hmm. and their kids don't want the land. So then what do they do? How do they find replacements for them to learn? And I think that's a, something that is, well, it's a, a long and complicated conversation, and I don't mean to have it sound facile, but I believe that there is a, a, a conversation to have about how to help farmers find uh, people who want to farm their land or who want to milk those cows, who want to do this stuff, but who cannot afford the land, but might be able to buy in or buy shares or, and yet still not uh, deprive the children of that farmer from their inheritance. They are entitled, you know, they, to, to, um, 
uh, uh, an inheritance from their parents. And so how to, how to make that work? Those, those are very complicated and some of them are like probably a lot of legal stuff, but the, I would like to see the spirit of it be um, uh, uh, broached and, 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 and looked at to see so that people can go and live on 25, 30, 50, 60 acres and actually make stuff. There are a lot of people who don't want to be rich. They just want to make a living. They just, you know what I mean? And, and those people need to be account, um, uh, helped to do that. Anyway. So do you think that, that it, because of, I think what you're saying is because land, particularly in, in arable and, you know, environmentally rich areas where you could mm -hmm. do these things is expensive, there needs to be some kind of subsidization program to make it possible because in the current economics, it, right, it's right. extremely yeah. out of balance. Yeah. Right. And how to work on a social cultural level with elders uh, to help them understand uh, how they can have their, uh, the, the, the land that they work, that they've spent their lives working on uh, continue even if their children don't want to be, don't want to actually do that work so that they're not just, that, that it's not just a black and white, well, the kids don't want the land, so I'm going to have to sell it. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, I'm struck by actually, we talked to Frank Reese, who I don't know if you've ever encountered him, but he's one of the last remaining standard poultry breeders, and he's in Kansas, and he, he doesn't have any children. And mm -hmm. he's been in this quest to find apprentices because there are so few people who know how to breed poultry naturally and that he's described in many of the ways you just, it's, it's both an art and a science and that you really have to learn by doing and there's a certain feel and, you know, yep. we we're talking about how the avian flu crisis has really brought into sharper focus the point he's been yelling from the rooftops for years. And I think that's an example of yeah. what you're talking and about. And I think the dairy, the dairy industry in places like Vermont where many of the workers on these dairy farms, you know, so you've got a herd of, I don't know, 200, 300, 400 cows. They've all got workers that work on them. And many of times these workers are immigrant workers from various places all over the world. How to help, and, and some of them have been working in these places for, you know, five, 10, 15 years. Their kids go to the local schools. Do you know what I mean? They've all, how to help those workers buy in to owning that, to eventually owning that dairy operation so that that dairy operation doesn't get, get go defunct. And do you think that really has to come from a kind of national policy and, and from, from that side that it, or possibly from non- yeah, No, it would yeah. help to have uh, national and fiscal policies in place such that when the emotional educational conversation uh, begins to be had, it can be pointed out, oh, well, this, these are some ways you can handle that. Oh, these are some ways that people are doing it. Oh, these are some ways. Do you see what I mean? As opposed to yes, having to reinvent, that would be so you don't a, have to reinvent the whole thing in, you yeah. know, in whole, in whole cloth. Um, I spoke to if a lady. Only we could we could shift the culture wars and the urban rural divide to, to focus on something like, like bridging that gap rather than some of the other silliness. Yes, and well, and there's a lot of tension 
which has to be diffused, which unfortunately in the political climate that we've had for really quite a while, is that notion that somehow there's this vast gulf between people in the city and people in the country. And I don't, when I see people in the city who have urban gardens, who are growing chickens, who have, um, who are going to farmer's markets, and it's, uh, and, and while also fighting these other larger of, of um, lack of uh, 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 good marketplaces in, in places of, uh, of uh, uh, high concentrations of, of uh, the poor and people of color. I mean, there's a lot of battles to be fought, but there's a lot of things being done also. Do you see what I mean? It, and so, I don't know. I may be very utopian, but, you know. No, I think that's great. And I think that there is, there's, I think there's a draw because it's a natural human thing to be drawn to the land. And I think as people are tiring of having everything made of plastic and that the loss of that connection between human life and land and organic things in both areas, people are more drawn to doing these things, uplifting these things, sustaining these yeah. things, but it, it's a slow process. Yeah. And they happen in cycles. I've been, oh, I'm old enough. I was just 80 last, last summer. And I've watched several cycles of this, uh, of this back to the land or counterculture movement or whatever they people choose to call it is that we have to have a um, we have to have a sensible a approach to you know people wanting to be to to have these experiences and to help them be able to do it and now what's great is we've got all this technology god i got to tell you if my husband and i had had all this technology when we were on the farm i can't imagine that we would have ever left the farm we well, I was arm. just going to say that it's kind of ironic, right? That it may be tech, which is in some oh, ways artificial. Yeah, the tech, no, the, uh, no, it's not. It's not artificial. We humans have been using tech ever since they discovered a wheel. That's tech. You know, we just so you just to see have, it as an evolution of a plow. Oh, it's yeah, just no, in it's a different all, form. Yeah, yeah, it is not. Yeah, I don't have any kind of you know big ideas about how. Oh God, the world is going to hell in a handbasket because now everybody's got a smartphone. I'm so glad to have a damn smartphone. I can't even hardly stand it, to tell you the truth. I can talk to people and meet people on this computer that I would never have had a chance to meet and interact with. You know, I got a canning comrade in Texas. Texas. I would never have met this woman. I would have no occasion to meet her. And she has been so helpful to me and and so encouraging and you know all of that but the and technology so what are, what are you are you canning the same thing in virginia as texas or are you canning well, different yeah things? she can she cans all kinds of stuff and even with her season now she just started i had to jump her ass the other day because she's already started putting seeds in the ground okay in texas i said don't even tell me about it my ground's frozen to five inches <laughs> but uh She's dehydrating, and that's not a thing that I, I, she persuaded me to get a dehydrator, and that's been a new technology for me. That's been really cool. I mean, I've been doing all this other stuff for 40, 50 years. Now I got a dehydrator, you know. Uh, but it's, Well, that's what, that's what I was going to ask you before we go to break. What What is your current focus on, on the farm or as a historian, or where are you putting your, your time <laughs> I, and energy I, right I, now? I, I do it all, kids. I, I, it all, it, to me, it's all the same thing. 
If somebody wants to talk about the history of food, I go talk about it. Sometimes we make a, we make a little bit of food from the past, and that's fun. If I'm talking about canning, then if I've got six students here and we're canning peaches and tomatoes, we're still talking history. If I'm canning, I got pressure canning students, and we're putting up meat and chicken. Well, we're talking about raising animals and butchering animals and cooking animals. If I've got a 150-pound half carcass of pig, I'll just have a a class and we'll all cut it up and they'll learn about how to cut it up. Not that they're necessarily going to ever cut up 150 pound half carcass of a pig again in their entire life, but they will never forget it. And they will have a sense of every time they go to the butcher. Oh yeah. I remember that. I remember cutting that chop and cutting that roast. Do you know what I mean? I'm not. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you're really integrating your two passions into a kind of living I'll, history experience. I'll always have always have that to me is the what makes it fun is you know you're doing a thing otherwise somehow if it's just the history then you're kind of talking about 200 year old dead people and i'm not that interested and if you're doing yeah, just no, the no, practical aspect then it's you know cutesy gingham i'm not going to name any names but you can imagine who i might be thinking of um <laughs> you know aspects of you know kitschy food shit Oh, I'm not supposed to do that, but I did it anyway. Um, <laughs> and do you see what I mean? I, there's Yeah, no, and I'm struck by that's also like the value of visiting Monticello. Someone can tell you about Monticello, you can read it in a book, but until you stand in those rooms, you don't feel it and experience it. And it, connect, it, it also really crosses that divide because if you can stand in a place that's two, 300 years old. And know you're, what you're happened right there. there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like that's why people that's why people go to Civil War battlefields. Every time I drive up 20 and I drive through the wilderness and then I drive through you know uh those places, I'm You're, stunned. I'm stunned. Yeah, no, it makes it different. You're cracking me because my my father and my mom are both historians. My dad's American historian and I have probably been to like 75% of all, the of all of those places. Yeah. In America. That's like yeah. my entire childhood visiting yeah. Where those I've been to all, Yeah. And I've been to all the kitchens, you know, and all the backyards and all the gardens. And, but I still, and I'm not, I'm about as metaphysical as a brick, you know what I mean? To tell you the truth, but I find those places deeply evocative and I want to tell those stories and I want to share it. And, you know, the, that's, that's, so I share it on all levels, whether we're outside and I'm teaching. If I'm, uh, I do an annual class of called chicken raising chickens for eggs, which I often call Chicken 101, um, with you know eight or nine students. And well, of course, we're still talking about the history of chickens. How they I was going to say, I think you'll have and, a big crop of students this 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 yeah, year you with know what the I mean? shortage. Yeah, so oh, there you go. Oh yeah. yeah, no, we we have every year. I'm in the process now of figuring out ordering ordering more chicken more chicks you know for what I'm for my purposes but I like doing I like have bringing people to my space is really wonderful for me and building uh, I now have a 501c3 foundation and that's going to help me bring more people to my space and um, uh, to teach and talk teach and talk and do you know that's kind of what I do that is amazing all right, we're gonna take our last break. And when we come back, we'll hear Lenny's Julia moment. Let us know what you think of today's show. Send us an email or voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really 
You just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. <laughs> no, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? <laughs> From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last oh. segment, which we oh. call the Julia moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she's inspired them in their career. Lenny, it sounds like you you relate to that statement. What's your Julia moment? I don't remember when the show was, but it was black and white. It wasn't color. But it must have been, because there had been long times in my lives when I've lived without a television. So the, the, I, I would have had the TV and I'm thinking in the six. Didn't she have a, her whole series in the '60s when PBS yeah, it ran, ran from that? About '63 to '73, or it's a little bit yeah, something like okay, to okay about in there. And it okay. went into color in about '68, I think. No, and I didn't have a, a okay. I didn't have a color television until '75. So she pulls out this duck, and she says, she "said the best thing you can do with duck." I, I'd never cooked a duck. In fact, I don't know, I'm not sure if I'd ever even eaten a duck, to tell you the truth. But here she is with this duck. And she says, well, you know, in her voice, because she's, she's very practical, about how ordinarily you have to cut it into quarters because that's the way it breaks up. And then you can only feed four people. But how she's been very clever, she's figured out how to debone the duck by turning it inside out and taking all the bones out and collapsing the breast, you know, because ducks have that long rib cage. Okay. Mm -hmm. collapsing it all together so that you can slice it across the whole um, breast section and you can feed six people. Okay. So then she gets into, and, and now, of course, to me, which is incredibly funny and wonderful is that she starts on the hind end, you know, and we're not going to, we won't go there too much, but anyway, so she starts turning this duck inside out, cutting as she goes. And she really, she ends up with this duck literally turned inside out with the bones, all with all of the breast bones, um, uh, the whole uh, coming out. And so mm -hmm. she's got this this bag, this duck bag, okay. And then she turns it back inside. She turns it back uh, inside in, and she seasons it, and then she roasts this duck. Well, I don't have a duck, but what I did have, of course, was a chicken. And I practiced on a number of chickens and I learned how to do, how to turn a chicken inside out from Julia. And I've always called her that. And I, you know, I, I guess everybody does um, how to do it. And so then uh, uh, maybe a couple of, I was doing that with chickens and that was a lot of fun. And so then I did it with a turkey. And so all of these years later, now I just spatchcock the bird because I'm, it's just easier, but I still take all the bones out. So I almost all of the uh, chickens that I process for my own freezer that I'm gonna roast whole and all of my turkeys for Thanksgiving, I have deboned them all the way. And I debone them. I take the thigh bone out. I take that top wing uh, uh, bone out so that these birds are well-seasoned and collapsed on themselves and tied loosely in, in turkey shape uh, because they are juicier, they taste better, uh, they're, they're easier to cut, and the 
mixture of the dark meat pressed against the white meat makes the white meat juicier mm. and nicer. And you credit this inspiration for doing it back to, back to seeing Julia uh, oh, do it. Oh, absolutely. Oh, no, I'll never forget her. I'll never forget her turning that <laughs> damn duck inside out. I was absolutely hysterical. And I thought, well, that makes absolute sense. And then I have since. Uh, I've been raised many years later. Uh, we raised uh, 12 ducks, uh, Pekin ducks. And the problem with Pekin ducks is that they're almost impossible to actually scald and pick. They're just very, that's why duck, one of the reasons duck is so expensive. It's very, very hard to, to, to pluck a duck really well. And um, so I had these, uh, I, and I realized I will never raise another duck in my life. It's kind of, that's where that went. But uh, I paid extra to have these ducks done, uh, plucked. And uh, I did, uh, in honor of Julia, I did uh, debone a duck. Uh, and uh, you know, that you'd raised yourself that I had that I'd raised from chicks raised from ducklings uh, ourselves it came in a box you know when you get chicks and ducks they come in a box from the hatchery and the, you go mm -hmm. to the you go to the post office and you pick them up and then you mm -hmm. bring them home and you take off the lid and they all look up at you well <laughs> chickens aren't this quite the same because they're, they're kind of silly and really stupid but ducks I wish I had a camera because my husband took the lid off and looked down at them and they all looked up at him and they all said, dad. Oh. And they just became his, his buddies from then on. They imprinted immediately on my husband, which was good because I was going to be the one that butchered them. So it didn't matter. Yeah, I was going to say, so he left that to you. After. Yeah. yeah. No, I don't, I don't, I am, I am not anthropomorphic at all about animals. They're all, they're all, you know, I, I don't eat baby animals, so I'm not really worried about that. You know what I mean? I wait till they're big enough that they're actually going to be able to serve a few people. Fair enough. But, uh, but I will never forget Julia and her and her doing the duck inside out was priceless. And it was 50 years ago and I have never forgotten it. And I tell it every single time I teach people how to debone a turkey, which I do fairly often. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Lenny. You are very welcome. This has been a lot of fun. Likewise. And thanks everyone for listening. If you want to learn more from Lenny, who has a lot to teach, you can check out indigohouse.us on Facebook and also on the web. It's at indigohouseva on Instagram. You might want to check out, and maybe there will soon be the deboning clip, from Julia Child and from the French Chef. It's at Julia Child on Facebook. There are new video clips being posted weekly. Please follow at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. I'm at T. Shulkin on Instagram. The 2023 Taste of Santa Barbara is coming up May 15 to 21. Follow at SB Culinary Experience on Instagram for the latest news about events in and around Santa Barbara, including a soon-to-be-announced spring pop-up. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at GBH. Thanks, as always, to my co-producer of the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Armin Spengen. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the foundation's world 
next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Inside Julia's Kitchen is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.